I think we'll go ahead and, uh, and get started. Uh, we've got a great uh, turnout for this exciting grand rounds. So the more people are, are going to be um, uh, coming in um, as we go along. But uh, given the fact that we've got three presentations in only uh, an hour, I think we should uh, go ahead. So welcome. Um, uh, as a beloved professor at Dartmouth's Tuck School of Business for more than 35 years, the late Brian Quinn established a reputation as an expert on entrepreneurship and technology. And outside the classroom, he and his wife, Allie, were known for their active involvement all across Dartmouth College, uh, Dartmouth-Hitchcock, and throughout our Upper Valley uh, communities. And we lost Brian and Allie uh, recently, but thanks to their uh, foresight, as well as the initiative of their three children, Virginia, uh, Jim, and Brad, their legacy continues through uh, our new uh, Innovation Awards program here at the Norris Cotton Cancer Center. And the Quinns um, uh, advised that, their, that funds from their parents' estate uh, be left to the Cancer Center to be used to help launch a new program to support Cancer Center investigators who are working to transi transition promising new drugs and devices um, from the laboratory into clinical <laughs> use. And members of our center um, uh, made their pitch uh, for uh, their new uh, uh, startup efforts to a committee last year. And we're about to hear uh, from our first awardees, the inaugural J. Brian and Allie J. Quinn Innovation Scholars. And we're delighted uh, that Virginia Quinn and her husband Hiroshi um, uh, could be here uh, today. Welcome and thank you. And perhaps brothers Jim and Brad and other members are, are watching um, uh, uh, the video uh, feed from, from out west. Um, so with generous funding from the Quinns and their friends, in 2018, we convened our first Cancer Center Innovations Advisory Board that we call our IAB, reflecting on the fact that our recent Cancer Center Research Strategic Plan held up entrepreneurship as a means by which we will accelerate the delivery of our Cancer Center's uh, discoveries to the world. And the IAB is made up of experts in all aspects of uh, innovation who offer our Cancer Center inventors networking opportunities, a connection with external funding sources, uh, basic business advice and pertinent to today's uh, discussion, an opportunity for Cancer Center seed funding through competition for our Quinn uh, Innovation Scholars Award. And today we have the three winning 2018 uh, Quinn Scholars who will be presenting uh, their projects and the progress that's been aided by the Quinn Award. And our IAB will soon convene uh, next week uh, to select our next cohort of 2019 uh, Quinn Scholars. So um, before we move on to our presentation, so I also want to uh, announce that next, um, uh, that it, on October 30th, all those who are interested in innovation and, and entrepreneurship within the Cancer Center are invited to join us for an Innovators Networking Lunch on October 30th uh, at noon in Reuben 852. And please let Linda Kennedy know if you plan to attend. So with that, um, uh, and given that time is short, I'm going to make these in introductions brief. Uh, our 2018 Quinn Innovation Scholars, our J. Bryan and Allie J. Quinn Innovation Scholars, are neuro-oncologist and neurosurgeon David Roberts, who uh, collaborates with engineer Keith Paulson to develop new surgical approaches for safer uh, brain tumor surgery. Um, engineer Saul Diamond and CEO Lydia Valdez 
uh, and their company, Lodestone, who've developed a device and a technique uh, to monitor the efficacy of anti-cancer therapy, and pathologist Greg Sungalis with a system for multi-organ screening, um, uh, cancer screening uh, in low-income uh, uh, countries. So, again, given the constraints of time, let's plan on holding our questions until after all three presentations to make sure we get through all three. And, Dave, uh, let's start with you. So please help me welcome Dave, Dave Roberts. Thank you, thank you very much, and uh, thank you to the Quinn family for uh, supporting us over this past year. I'm going to try to cover a lot of ground. This work uh, encompasses uh, the efforts of a large number of individuals across the institution. Uh, the obligatory disclosures, uh, the first are for loan of equipment and loan of drug. Uh, Insight Surgical Technologies is the startup that Keith and I and Brian Wilson from Toronto have founded. Uh, IND was required for ALA that I'll talk about, although it's, no, it's now FDA approved. Uh, over the course of uh, the past 15 years, where mo when most of this work was done, uh, it's been funded largely through NIH. There are two uh, recent SBIR grants in the last year. A uh, large number of individuals, some of whom are here, and I apologize for any omissions. They're at a, at a number of sites. University of Toronto with Brian Wilson has been key. Image guidance. When I was a resident, not that long ago, uh, surgeons operated uh, flying by the seat of their pants, and their best judgment as to where a tumor might be, such as this one, would lead to the surgeon say, cut here. And hard, hard to believe uh, that at a time when you could locate the QE2 in the Atlantic within a couple of meters, that that's how we did, did neurosurgery. At the time of surgery, that's the field you would look at. And a surgeon trying to decide where in relation to eloquent cortex an incision should be made or a resection carried out carried significant morbidity because of that. Image guidance. Uh, the first patent of which I'll, I'll just mention uh, actually uh, belongs to Dartmouth. And it goes back to the uh, early 1980s. Image guidance provides an overhead display of the tumor shown in green, and now functional information such as the hand area in light blue and the leg area in yellow superposed on the surgical field to guide the resection. The problem the problem with this is that as soon as the surgery starts, things start to move. You open up the skull, you open up the dura, you start resecting, you put a retractor in, and the accuracy of image guidance goes from about two millimeters to over a, a centimeter error. Well, well recognized. This is in, uh, the, the first technology of two I'm going to talk about this morning it has to do with updating the co-registration of image guidance to correct for that deformation. Uh, a, a brute force solution would be to put an intraoperative MRI in your operating room uh, and just keep doing scans, but it takes 45 minutes or more to do that, and surgeons don't do that very often. It disrupts the, the surgical workflow. Uh, this updating process uh, incorporates a 3D finite element uh, model uh, that's generated from the preoperative MRI data in the bottom left. And, and Keith, who worked with us <clears throat> on the hyperthermia project that some of you will remember from the 70s and 80s, uh, uh, had expertise in 3D finite element modeling and said, hey, we can do this. And uh, <clears throat> that model 
can then be, uh, the brain is subject to all the forces, maybe not the mind, but all the forces of the physical world. So things like gravity and buoyancy and so forth have to apply to the surgical field. And you can predict how the brain would move during the course of surgery. And you actually can predict much better than you might think. But the technology I'm going to talk about uh, is better than that because it's informed by what we call sparse data. Data streams like intraoperative ultrasound, or better yet, the, the optical field generated by an operating microscope uh, while the surgeon's operating, you don't have to stop the procedure to get that data. That can inform that 3D model, and it can constrain where different nodes of that have to be. In fact, in doing that, you could become theoretically more accurate than intraoperative MRI. And then once you deform the 3D mesh, as you see in the colored mesh, you can then, in the reverse operation that you started with, regenerate MRI-looking images that would be useful to the clinician. Uh, of the two data streams, uh, for time reasons, I'm only going to speak about one of them, uh, the optical image from the operating microscope. This version of it, which is a at least 2.0, has two cameras that have been added to a conventional operating microscope about the size of sugar cubes, those black uh, objects to the right in that image, who take a stereo pair and from that generate these images. Uh, if you cross your eyes, you can get a 3D image, but that's not our interest here. It's to actually analytically solve the location of every pixel in those images in 3D space. And it can do this at rates up to 15 hertz. All of this while the surgeon's still operating. You don't have to have to stop. And because the operating microscope is being tracked by a conventional tracking system, we can relate that image to the MRI that we started with. Uh, I thank uh, Shia Fan, who's in the second row um, for this slide and for all her work over the years on this. You can see the stereo uh, representation on the left. You can see the preoperative MRI next to it. And you can see the displacement map. This isn't a simple translation of, of left to right or anything like that. This actually is a nonlinear deformation uh, map that you see as well as understanding how high or low the field has gone relative to the starting point of the registration. And when implemented with running through that, that, that algorithm I showed you, at the bottom you could see at the start of a case, if the surgeon were, had the focal point of the operating microscope on the surface of the brain, that's what a conventional image guidance system would show you. Uh, next to it is the deformed MRI. This is a conventional standard image guidance system uh, that's used in pretty much every operating room in the world today in neurosurgery. Uh, here we are at the start of the case. Uh, we're focused on the brain, but the image guidance system isn't very helpful to you here. And here it is on that same platform integrated to show you an updated MRI. Uh, here, here, here's a, a more compelling demonstration that, to my mind. The, both measures, MISFIT and TRA, are ways to determine how accurate is that co-registration, that matching of the surgical field guidance information with the preoperative data set. And you can see that after the dura is opened at the start of a case, your error here represented in red is on the order of 4 to more than 12 millimeters uh, inaccurate. 
But implementing this algorithm, you can see in green that that error has been brought down to two millimeters or lower. Now, this is an implementation just at the start of the case when the door has been opened. But during the case, that stereo feed from the operating microscope is continuously provided so that the system can keep reiterating and it can take the last updated image and re-update it and then re-update it and so forth uh, at each stage of the operation demonstrated on the top. And here you can see in the middle row an updated MRI to reflect the removal of the skull, the initial por portion of the resection and the third image, middle, middle row, uh, third image from the left. And then lastly, at the end of resection, what the updated image would look like. And similar to the previous slide I showed, here's the error. Even after the first update in red, again, errors frequently on the order of five to 15 millimeters. And in green, that the accuracy below two millimeters is preserved. It really makes image guidance that in its conventional form as practiced around the world, and the only way it's practiced around the world, is accurate to a little better than two millimeters at the start of surgery, but during resection is terrible. Uh, it's a lot better than what, what an unaided surgeon could do. The error uh, is maybe half of what it would be if the surgeon were just guessing where to go. But if you can bring it down to two millimeters when you're operating next to things like the cortical spinal tract or your speech area, this is, this is what you would want. Now, two millimeters uh, is pretty good for conventional resection, uh, but it reminds me of uh, one of Simon Winchester's books that came out, The Perfectionists, How Precise Engineering Created the Modern World. And every chapter takes accuracy in order of magnitude better. And two millimeters is pretty good, but could you, could you in a, using a different technology, do better than that? And the answer is yes. This is just, just to enjoy the image. Uh, uh, the surgical field in, in, in neurosurgery is full of wonder, and th this is an example of that, at least to me. You can see fluorescein that's just been injected a few seconds earlier, first filling the arteries, now filling the smaller arteries on the cortical surface. Now starting to accumulate in the veins. And you'll notice up near the top of the surgical field, an accumulation of fluorescein in an irregular pattern, which represents where the tumor is. Now fluorescein has been used in surgery one way or another since the late 40s, 1940s. And it's what we call a dumb fluorophore. It just goes where blood goes, and it accumulates where there's blood-brain barrier breakdown. Now, there's a lot more information in this slide than your eye can appreciate. The kinetics of that distribution through the different compartments I described are all different. And it's possible to analytically calculate information about where the tumor might be, as in this image. And there are many ways you can analyze that data. Here's another one. And all of this information can be brought into the surgery through things like heads-up display. For that matter, if you were operating robotically, your robot needs to be co-registered, and it would be operating off a new map. Here's the second of three fluorophores I'm going to talk about. And this one <clears throat> uses 5-amino uh, levulinic acid, ALA. And ALA is much smarter than fluorescein because it only goes, it's preferentially taken up by tumor. 
In the heme synthesis pathway, the rate-limiting step is ALA synthetase, and if you give an exogenous superphysiologic load of ALA, it drives the equation all the way down to protoporphyrin 9. But in the absence of iron, it will not go on to form hemoglobin, and protoporphyrin 9 will accumulate preferentially in tumor. PP9, or protoporphyrin 9, is a fluorophore. It absorbs energy at, on the left, at the blue portion of the visible spectrum, and it emits fluorescence at the red portion of the spectrum on the right. Here's an operating microscope that's been adapted for fluorescence guidance. With the touching of a button, and this is now commercially available. Uh, if you touch a button on that operating microscope, the white surgical field in which the tumor boundary is not perceptible to the human eye, if you touch a button to illuminate the field with blue light, the tumor preferentially will glow this pinkish red color. So that registration error that previously was dependent upon <clears throat> a registration step is no longer present because this is an intrinsic, intrinsic marker uh, to orient. And it enables resections like this. A multi-institutional German study uh, showed that the extent of complete resection was doubled if you used fluorescence guidance. Six-month progression-free survival was doubled with guidance. In that fluorescent signal is a lot more information, uh, as you all know, that the eye doesn't perceive. All of these emissions coming from different elements. And this is a probe that's handheld during surgery. And tissue that doesn't fluoresce is here visible. Or you can see in the spectrum the presence of PP9. And it's possible to quantify how much PP9 is present. An ROC curve used for every diagnostic test we use for visible subjective fluorescence as commonly practiced is here at 0.73. Not bad. Here it is if you have quantitative fluorescence. Using a probe is a point-by-point -point inspection. Not very efficient toward the end of a resection when you're interested in interrogating the entire field. So you'd like to have it wide field. And here's an adaptation of the operating microscope in the top right uh, that enables you to do that. On the left, white light. In the middle, blue light. You can see that pink fluorescence. On the right, a color map superposed with the concentration of the, of, of the fluorophore. Here at the end of resection, you would think you were done in the middle, but using this system, you're directed to the residual tumor. Uh, one problem is it doesn't penetrate below the surface because blue light's highly absorbed by hemoglobin. It doesn't get through um, rat model on the bottom of a tumor, white light, blue light, you don't see anything. But if you change the wavelength to something that will penetrate tissue, you can. And here's a clinical implementation. The bone's been removed. You're looking at the dura. There's an underlying glioblastoma. Under blue light conditions, you see nothing. But the system, using a higher frequency, wavelength now will penetrate and you can see where the tumor lies. And um, uh, for the sake of time, skip over this, but you can give multiple fluorophores and you can calculate the concentration for each. This patient has received both fluorescein and ALA. And since their mechanisms of uptake uh, by tumor are different, that's complementary information. And lastly, I'll just close uh, with a very exciting development here at Dartmouth using uh, AB, uh, using ABY. Um, this is a this is a 
peptide sequence that targets EGFR. So this is a really smart fluorophore. And uh, Brian Pogue and Keith Paulson have done an enormous amount of work on bringing this into the clinic. Uh, here's the first case that was done here in brain with this. Uh, tumor surgical field on the top left and the guidance provided on the right. And the use of these near-infrared dyes uh, that are targeted molecularly are changing, I believe, the way guidance is done. And I'll just close with this because this directly applies to the uh, Quinn scholarship. Uh, all of the work that I just described was done over the last 15, 20 years. And we randomly got intellectual property uh, for these different developments. And over the years, uh, <clears throat> there are close to 20 patents that were either applied for, about half of which have now been issued. But they were done non-strategically, randomly. They were just done and then put it on the shelf. We didn't do anything with them. And they were managed uh, passively. Uh, we wanted to disseminate these. And the only way that we saw to be able to do this was through forming a company called Insight Surgical Technologies. And we're currently in the process of licensing all of these from, from Dartmouth so that we could disseminate them. Uh, and to organize this, to understand the intellectual property uh, that had been randomly produced and, ran and passively managed, uh, we've engaged the top-tier intellectual property firm, Morgan Lewis. They've been phenomenal. Two patents that have been held up for, um, that have been held up for, for five, six years, they got through in the course of six months. And now strategically organizing the IP to understand where there are gaps that need to be filled, where we have vulnerabilities, and where our strengths lie, uh, they're able to do that. And lastly, this is Insight Surgical Technologies with uh, Keith Paulson uh, and Brian, Brian Wilson from Toronto who did the, the, the work with the probe uh, initially. And Bernie Lyons, whose very first job out of Stanford, a postdoc, was in our lab here on hyperthermia, and he went into industry and has come back to give back, and he's our, our acting CEO. And the list that I hope really will increase is in the senior engineers where Alex Hartoff and Dennis Worth from our, our lab have transitioned over to do that, and uh, uh, we're hoping to, to, to attract a Shia fan. So thank you very much. Great, thanks, Dave. So next we'll hear from Saul Diamond, who will tell us about uh, how his company, uh, uh, Lodestone Pharmaceuticals, is using magnetic nanoparticles to uh, predict treatment responses. Saul. Thank you. Saul, so, uh, Great. So this is not on the um, projecting. Thank you. Okay. Great. So um, I'll be presenting on our progress over the past year on um, developing technology to monitor uh, immune status in the tumor and its microenvironment. And this is, uh, I am a professor over at Thayer School of Engineering, I'm a member of the Cancer Center here. Um, I'm also the, the CEO, or the, the CTO at Lodestone Biomedical. Our CEO, Lydia Valdez, is not able to join us uh, today. There we go. Okay, so there, Dartmouth does hold several patents on technologies that are uh, that are being presented here, where I'm a named inventor. 
Um, as I mentioned, um, we've got a startup company, Lodestone Biomedical, and I have some ownership stake, a technology officer, and patents, patents have been licensed into the company with the intent of developing medical products. So I'm going to share with you the overall concept of what we're doing, give you an update on our progress, and tell you where we're going. So first, just to take a step back and look at the, um, the numbers, um, you know, cancer remains a, a pressing problem in the world. Um, the numbers are a bit staggering with, with um, over 1.9 million new cases expected uh, just starting next year. Um, and the cancer immunotherapy market is really an exciting area uh, for a lot of different reasons. If looking at this from the, through the lens of a startup company, it's also, it also matters a lot that it is a healthy, growing segment of the economy that's surrounding, surrounding cancer. So there's space in here to innovate uh, productively and bring something to market. So there is a, the underlying need here uh, relates to monitoring of therapeutic response. And I'm just going to pick on one um, drug in particular to make the point, which is uh, pembrolizumab or Truda, uh, which is a, um, it's an approved frontline front treatment for non-small cell lung cancer. Uh, it can offer uh, tremendous um, advantages to those patients who respond to the treatment with you know, durable, lasting, uh, lasting remissions being possible, and yet the, res the overall response rate remains stubbornly low. As a monotherapy, that number is around 48%, so it's really a coin toss. And meanwhile, that's happening at a very high cost uh, to the healthcare system with um, uh, costs for the drug itself on the order of uh, $12,000 or so dollars per month. Um, so there's a tremendous amount of money being spent uh, in this system on non-responder immunotherapy and the large number of patients who are having to deal with that uh, situation and care providers in a situation with a lot of uncertainty. So that scenario plays out in this, uh, it's illustrated in this slide here where you have you know, a frontline treatment decision and a first dose. And standard of care today is to uh, wait and see and monitor those tumors with imaging technologies such as uh, CT or MR. And those doses would continue, in fact, because you can have um, what's called um, yeah, a, a, a pseudo progression or, um, or a um, where the, as an immune acting agent, the tumor might become inflamed in the process of responding positively. And so it might look larger on an imaging slide when in fact it's responding positively. And so you really need to wait quite a while to see what's happening um, from the standpoint of size. Um, so it would be a better situation is to have more information earlier to help in that decision making, to help also fundamentally at a place like, like the Cancer Center in the process of drug discovery itself and advancing the science more rapidly. But if you look all the way to the clinical, then um, providing information that is more informative earlier is going to yield a lot of benefit. Our vision here, just schematically, is to have a, an in vivo biosensor, an implantable probe that can, I mean, this is just represented by a little dot in the body, something that can be placed in the uh, tumor environment and then probed with a magnetic uh, detector to then monitor the immune response in that uh, tumor. So an advantage of this sort of 
technique would be using magnetics to give us a deep uh, signal penetration depth, uh, which would be important in many cases. Um, and also to develop a biosensor that has a direct molecular interaction with the targets. We're really measuring quantities that matter most and to enable an easy, um, near real-time, non-invasive readout for uh, ongoing monitoring would be significantly advantageous. And you know, from the business standpoint, this is where those, those of us in the Lodestone team and our collaborators put our, put our hats on and think, okay, we've got this science that's evolving, but let's step back and think about how this would exist in the, you know, as a product, what, what's most important for this to be successful. And then in terms of what would you measure, well, there's actually quite a, a large menu of options, the various immune signaling factors, uh, metabolic markers, all sorts of things uh, that you drill down. And these, these are different molecules, different, um, different you know, chemokines and uh, tumor-derived factors and so forth that could help provide information. And for us, we, we're really interested in the, the tumor microenvironment because that's where you're gonna see the most immediate uh, data, the highest concentration changes and um, provide uh, you know, some advantages over what's existing technology, which it would include things like monitoring of urine and blood and other things. So when we envision the future, this is what it looks like. Again, just keeping this on the schematic high level, you would come in for your uh, frontline treatment decision and probably on the same day when you're getting your biopsy, there would be an implant of a biosensor, um, perhaps with the very same needle at the very same procedure. And then monitoring of that first dose would begin immediately. And so there would be data coming out that would provide guidance for how that treatment is working out for that particular patient. So just a little step back to think about the underlying technology here, which is a magnetic nanoparticle system. I'm just going to give you a, one slide, very high level, thinking about this little black dot here as a magnetic nanoparticle, which has a magnetic core and some coatings with some special chemistry on it. But in the core, it has a strong magnetic uh, response. And so it has a, like a compass needle, it has a direction, and that um, magnetic domain can reorient. You can also have the entire assemblage of the particle uh, spinning around in solution. And those are two different physical phenomena that both drive what we call the relaxation time, which tells us about the magnetic signal. So that internal one from the core is called neo-relaxation, and the movement of the entire particle called Brownian relaxation. They have a different mathematics. They contribute differently to the signals that we measure. Um, and the key here is that if we take and functionalize these particles, they with antibodies, and they interact with one another such that they either become immobilized on a fixed surface <laughs> or to one another, that will affect the, the Brownian rotation of these particles in a way that we can detect. And so we're exploiting the underlying physics and the strong magnetic response of the particles. Take something that you may have, that you might be familiar with from say, uh, ELISA techniques used on the bench top. We're bringing that we're gonna package that inside of a biosensor that can go into a human and get those readouts remotely with our magnetic system. But then we also need to encapsulate that system inside of a semi-permeable membrane to prevent these things from just getting eaten up by macrophages and walking away. Um, and so that system is the biosensor probe. It's this 
semipermeable membrane with a collection of nanoparticles designed to attach to various target <coughs> molecules. Biosensor probe itself looks something like this. Um, this is uh, shown schematically. We have we have actual devices that look very much like this today over at, over at company. They contain a small quantity of iron oxide. So we're talking on the order of of uh, microgram quantities, which is a micro dose of the agent, and that's going into a needle implantable biosensor. But then we have a, a readout system. So this we've got two that I'll show you. This one is a um, in vivo, or sorry, this is the in vitro system. We'll see the in vivo in a moment. And it's going to flip through here. It's got a bunch of hardware and features that allow us to make very accurate measurements on, on um, samples that come in from the lab, uh, from our collaborators, and to test out the system. So it's got a bunch of specifications. Um, it's small. Uh, this is working with order of 100 microliter volumes, which is great for in, in vitro work. Um, but you'll see in a moment, this is getting expanded out first to hold mice and then later people. So we scan these things inside of a bunch of magnetic coils. Uh, we've got some software that allows us to do accurate control. Um, and we can watch this data stream in in real time. So we can put a sample inside of our machine and within seconds, we know what is the, the chemical environment in which that biosensor resides? What do the probes actually look like? This was an early one made from origami folding of a microdialysis membrane. We now have a much more sophisticated version. This is showing a time response of adding an agent um, and that we can add more later and it continues to respond. Um, this is some more recent data. This is published data here. Um, this was presented at a conference recently. And we're, sh we're showing that we can get very sensitive uh, recordings. In this case, we're looking at IL-6 in the picogram per milliliter concentration range, which is biologically relevant. This is showing a time response to interferon gamma, where we're looking at a, a phase change property. And the important thing is that we're sensitive to molecules of interest in concentration ranges that are relevant. Our next steps are really the, the rollout of the small animal system. And here, what we're doing is this is the this is the, uh, you know, the in vitro, this is the animal system. So it has a lot of the same hardware on the inside, driven by a lot of the same software. Uh, but the important <coughs> thing is this one can hold, the new one can hold a mouse. It also has a lot more magnetic coils in it that allow us to do the 3D imaging and multi-sensor readouts so we can monitor, uh, say, a primary brain tumor um, in collaboration with RDGAR. We've got a panel protocol already approved for this. And also look at things in the flank simultaneously and, and try to understand local and systemic response to uh, immunotherapy treatment in a mouse model. So that's what's up next for us. And that's, go, goes, that's the next step beyond uh, the Quinn Scholar Award. And then we'll build up our data to support the regulatory review process and our steps towards a human clinical system. So that, uh, we've got several collaborators been helping out uh, John Weaver in radiology helped us with the IL-6 data. Um, Artie Gar, as I mentioned, is our collaborator for the um, a brain tumor and mouse model work that's upcoming. And of course, the Quinn Innovation Scholars Program. Um, the team over at Lodestone, um, Lydia Valdez is the chief executive officer. Uh, Brad and Christian are two um, 
outstanding engineers who are driving this technology forward. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you, Saul. So um, then um, our, our third um, uh, Quinn Scholar presentation is from um, pathologist Greg uh, Sangalis, who's going to tell us about the system that he's developed for uh, multi-organ uh, cancer screening in uh, low-resource uh, countries. Greg. Thanks. Thanks, Steve. Thank you. You know, a, a number of years ago, a few presidential elections ago, Ross Perot, some of you may remember, had a vice presidential candidate, and he started one of his debates by saying, you don't know who I am, and I have no idea what I'm doing here. <laughs> <laughs> and so I kind of feel like that guy, because the story I'm going to tell you about the project we worked on and that's being taken to the next level by the Quinn Scholar Funding is very, very different than, than what you've just heard from the previous two Quinn scholars. And, and this is a, a story uh, that takes us back to some work that we've been doing and working on now, probably for a good six or seven years, uh, in really looking at how to implement cancer screening programs in low and middle income countries. And so, first of all, I'll tell you, it's really been quite an honor to be selected as one of the Quinn scholars, and certainly thank you to the Quinn family uh, for supporting this. Uh, and for anybody that's put in for this coming round, prepare yourself, because it's really an amazing, amazing process <laughs> to go through. And I'll tell you, I've never been as nervous as I was or ever for a presentation as I was for when I had to go into the shark tank, uh, and make the pitch. I had nightmares about people in there asking me all kinds of stuff and telling me I was fired. <laughs> so, so, what I'll, so what I'll do uh, is take you through what the original problem was uh, that we were dealing with, what the solution was that we came up with, and then how the Quinn funding is really allowing us to take that to the next level and what some of these new challenges are uh, in the next few minutes. So we started out in Honduras, and Honduras uh, in Central America is a place where we've had faculty from Dartmouth uh, go down and do work for many, many years in some of the remote parts of the country, providing healthcare services and stuff. And at the time, there was a new mandate from the NCI for comprehensive cancer centers to begin doing more global health types of initiatives. Uh, and I went down, Linda Kennedy has a, a strong uh, relationship with the folks down there and with the people from here that have been going down there. So I went down to look at this and start looking at what some of the issues might be that we could address on the cancer side of things. A lot of global health work, you know, focuses on infectious disease uh, and so on. And we've begun doing work uh, in the cancer space now, looking at cervical cancer in, in Honduras, because this was the one thing that the folks there said, hey, we really need some help. Uh, in this particular area because uh, it's really out of control. And so part of the problem was this, that there's, unlike the U.S. and developing countries, there wasn't a national screening program for cervical cancer like we have here. And so there were really lots of people, young women, that had metastatic cervical cancer and very advanced disease like we don't see typically in the U.S., 
part of the problem was even though certain individuals, certain parts of the country were getting pap smears, they didn't have enough trained people in the country to review the slides, make the diagnoses. Right? In the whole country, they have less than 10 pathologists that are certified or qualified to do this type of testing. So when you go for a pap smear, you could imagine having your test done and then six or seven months later, maybe you'll get your result back if the mailman brings the result, the paper report to the right place. Uh, and if you're in a remote part of the country, that's just probably not going to happen. That you probably wouldn't even be tested, never mind get the result back to the same place. And so we went down there thinking, how could we improve that whole process? And one of the easiest ways, I'm a lab rat, and so one of the easiest ways we could do that was by implementing some type of a new lab test that would address that problem, make it very, very easy for testing to occur, not require a lot of expertise uh, for resulting out uh, the, the results of the test, and so on. And so we introduced high-risk and low-risk HPV testing using PCR-based technology that we could make portable and transportable and mobile around the country to different regions. And so I'll just take you through just a couple of these things, because we had a number of studies, and I just want to show you a few to highlight what some of these were. In 2013, we did our first, what we've called the Hornada or the journey uh, of these health fairs in a little tiny village called El Rosario. And El Rosario was chosen because of physicians here that had been going down and, and doing work there for a long time. Uh, but it was a, an incredibly remote little village that we started this process with because we had to lay the groundwork for what we were gonna be doing and how we were gonna be able to do that. In 2016, we did a second study, but this one was in San Pedro Sula. And so San Pedro Sula is probably the biggest city closest to El Rosario, and it's about a four hour or so car drive away. Okay, so that was one of the areas we focused on. And there we did something a little bit different. In order to have a captured population of, of participants, we focused on New Holland Apparel. So New Holland Apparel is a big factory, a modern factory that makes textiles. They actually make a lot of the jerseys and shorts and stuff for Nike uh, and some of the other uh, places that we buy from. And so that was a really um, important study to really show that we could scale up this whole process. In 2017, we took everything to La Mesquitia. La Mesquitia is one of the absolute remote places in the country. It's a huge natural reserve type of place, one of the biggest in the world. Very, very, very difficult to get access to, um, but we were able to do that and, and perform some of the testing on individuals there. And then in 2017, we came back to San Pedro Sula to another textile company called Gildan. And I want you to keep in mind those two textile companies because they become very, very important in what our next phase uh, of this project is going to be or what we think it's going to be. Right. And so, again, from the lab perspective, this was really uh, technically, technically challenging. I know a lot of you work in labs. I just wanted to take you through a few slides. Just the specimen collection. You know here in the U.S., when you go for a pap smear, you have a brush sample that gets put into a liquid cytology fixative methanol. It goes to the lab, gets processed, and so on. So none of that was available, right? And very little electricity was available. DNA extractions, right? If you're putting in your next grant budget, don't even bother putting in DNA extractions. You just need a pot of boiling water. Right? <laughs> uh, and so we were able to do that with a crude lysate in our real-time PCR reactions. 
first with this boiling pot of water and the little floaties that I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with. But then in order to scale it up, the postdoc in my lab said, hey, we need something better for the extraction. We want to use something different. He modified a rice steamer uh, to be able to do DNA extractions very quickly in a lot of samples at the same time. And then we partnered with a company out of China called ZSAN, this little portable PCR instrument that you see on the left. And that was part of the issue was that it was portable. The other part was that all of the reagents were lyophilized, dried, so that we didn't have to worry about refrigeration and storage because we didn't have that available to us. I'll show you this picture of Linda and I in the lab because I want you to see that this, this instrument, all the data analysis and stuff is done off of a very simple um, laptop. And so there's no real heavy duty data analysis because we were doing melt peak determinations like this for all of the different high risk and low risk types. And so this from the lab perspective was really, really kind of cool to be able to establish because it was so untraditional and non-traditional compared to the way we do HPV testing here in the lab at Dartmouth and around the country. The other thing uh, that these studies proved to us was this, that people were very, very accepting uh, and very, very willing to participate in all the different studies. And so the first study, when we asked folks in the village, how many women do you think are going to show up for this? They said, oh, you'll get at least 100 women. Uh, And so this is one of the photos here. And, And when the team showed up, we had just under 500 women lined up waiting uh, to participate in the study and to be screened and so on. And, and that happened study after study after study that people were just incredibly willing. Uh, this bottom left uh, photo here is the picture inside of one of, the, one of the factories just to show you the numbers of people that were working there. And I think any of the given factories had at least 4,000 women or so that were potentially screened. And so that, that really showed to us that this was willing or people were willing to accept being part of the study and to be screened and that we could scale the operation up. The other big part of it that though, that of this, though, that a lot of studies uh, forget about is the follow-up. And, and so one of the coolest things uh, that we were able to do was to establish relationships there, not only with the people in the villages and some of these towns, but also in the cancer center in La Liga. Uh, is our biggest collaborator. They are a cancer center in San Pedro Sula where all of the patients or participants get followed up if they have any type of an abnormal result or so. And so we've kind of implemented the follow-up care as well. It became evident to us early on um, that, you know, just doing the cervical cancer screening wasn't going to be enough and we were going to need to do more. And so in this picture on the left are four of the women that participated in one of the studies And I'll just call your attention to the woman on the far left in the blue uh, blouse, uh, that she doesn't have an extended or protruding abdomen. She actually has a very, very massive breast cancer that had gone undetected because she had never been to a physician before. Uh, And this woman, unfortunately, about a year or so later passed away. Uh, And it reminded us that we need to be able to do more as far as the screening goes and so on. And then the gentleman in the village said, hey, you know, that's great that you're doing all this stuff for the women in the villages. What about us? And so we set up this whole screening program around common tumors that we see in men. And in the first study, this is just a picture of how people got there. I think I counted 15 or 16 guys in the back of this pickup truck uh, coming to the health fair. So surprising to me was that even the men were very, very willing to participate 
Uh, and I think one of them told Linda that the only reason he was there was because his wife made him. But nonetheless, they showed up uh, for, the, for these studies and, and was a big part of it. And so our solution was to start expanding the Hornada or the health fair to, to screening for different types of tumors uh, in different organ systems so that we could maximize what uh, our impact was going to be, not only on the person and the family, but the surrounding villages and the population. And this idea of social entrepreneurship uh, that we're dealing with now becomes really critical to this whole project. Um, we have a great brigade style, what's called brigade style boots on the ground system for providing education and, and the screenings in a multidisciplinary fashion. And I'll just show you the three steps uh, that we've developed over the years of building this program. The first is to attract large numbers of individuals for the study. And I think early on we showed that that wasn't an issue because people were very, very willing. Uh, in this picture, Linda, Linda had a really great idea of interacting with not so much the patients or the participants, but the kids and using the kids from the different villages to spread the word and spread the news that, hey, you know, whoops, uh, this healthcare system is coming and they're gonna do this health fair and maybe mom and dad, you should go to it or, you know, and do these skits for education and stuff. And so they call La Fuerza para la Fortuna or the force of the future. And that's been a really effective way of communicating uh, with individuals around these different villages. Triaging uh, the individuals through that whole Hornada system with physicians and, and volunteers from here, as well as healthcare providers from Honduras and medical students from Honduras, works really, really well. And I think we have a great process in place. Uh, and then lastly, that referral or follow up becomes really important. And so the, this bottom picture, uh, this woman standing here with me, is Dr. Uh, Suyapa Bejarano. And so when you think you have a long day as far as the hours you put in, you should think of Dr. Bejarano. And when you think you're having a bad day in the lab or in the clinic, you should think of this lady. Because I don't know that I've met anyone that does what she does for the number of hours a day and the days of the week um, to, to provide services to people in some of the remote places that I've ever, ever been to. He's really a, a remarkable individual to get to know. And so where does that fit in with the Quinn Scholar uh, <coughs> Innovations Program that we're, we're a part of? Well, like I said at the beginning, it was kind of surprising um, and that we were accepted into this program because I don't have a device or an instrument or, or even a drug or anything like that to propose. The proposal is the system, right? The system that took us 10 years to work out that's been accepted by a number of places now throughout Honduras and so on. And I think... The advisory board was really appreciative of the outcomes that we've had uh, with screening now more than three or 4,000 women, uh, being able to make this mobile uh, and reach people that really are unreachable by other methods. Um, and stuff. Our compliance with follow-up uh, of patients or individuals that found, we found abnormalities in uh, is almost 100%, but we have to go to this you know, this is not a freebie, no money, no profit type of thing, and, and it has to be self-sustaining. Uh, and that's where this Quinn uh, funding comes in board, on board because they allow us to now start thinking about operationalizing this uh, in a cancer screen for a cancer screening program that's self-sustaining in one of the poorest countries in the hemisphere um, in a way that will allow the patient to see us. 
And so we're taking this on the road, uh, this system on the road, working with uh, La Liga in Honduras to develop a van that could be completely mobile for all of this type of screening, which if you look at the table, is very, very basic. Right? We're not doing any, there's no CAT scans or anything like that. This is very basic uh, screening that allows us to pick up tumors as early as we can uh, with some of those methods but it's really important because these people have nothing else. And so we've partnered, the twin funding allows us now to partner with the Tuck School right in our backyard. And, and you know, I think one of the problems that, uh, at least it was a problem for me, is I have very little knowledge about all of the other programs that go on, either at our institution here or at the college and stuff. And so this program at Tuck is an on-site global consultation program that all of their MBA students have to participate in. And so we're partnering with them. Kerry Lothar is uh, the leader, uh, the director of that program. And, and those kids have to come in and work in a country uh, that they, that's new to them uh, and develop a, a program for operationalizing some type of uh, system in those places. And so in this picture, this is Linda Kennedy and Kerry uh, Lothar meeting with two of the Hondurans that work in the Institute for Social Security there, which is also another important part of operationalizing. But we have Tuck students, that occurred in August. We have Tuck students now, six of them, that are working on a plan to be on-site in Honduras for three weeks to help us understand how best to operationalize this through some of the factories, through numbers of patients that would need to be screened, and some of the other interesting uh, types of questions that we could ask. Those factories become really, really important because as part of a social entrepreneurship type of thing, uh, we can work with them to hopefully convince them that this screening is good for uh, their employees and, and is an added value for being able to work at one of their companies and then kind of disperse the testing out to other places. And so this is really uh, where, we're, where we are now. December is a really big month for this project. Uh, with the Tuck School um, Global On-Site Program and, and being able to develop this further so that our next steps uh, can be seen in Honduras and I think maybe taken to other parts of the world as well. So these are collaborators, a lot of people here at Dartmouth and then certainly Suyapa and some of the other physicians uh, in Honduras that have been really critical for us to be able to do this work. Okay, so thank you very much. Here, if you would, well, thank thank you, Greg. So I think it's it's clear that this is um, uh, um, a gift uh, from a wonderful Upper Valley family that has allowed our cancer center to amplify its impact uh, locally, nationally, and and globally. So again, we're very grateful. We probably have time for one uh, question. Um, it, would anyone like to uh, offer a question to the group? I might ask, you know, so we think about, you know, the valley of death in bringing um, devices and drugs to the to the clinic, and and there are actually multiple valleys, right? And um, at, at at some point, it costs millions of dollars to bring uh, a discovery to the clinic. So I'd just like um, to ask you, all three of you, perhaps how how this seed money uh, got you through one of the early, uh, or is getting you through one of the early valleys. Um, in thoughts, I'm happy to. Start off the um, uh, for us the, the really the key was moving from a, an engineering concept to something that was working in collaboration with um, cancer biology labs here at the cancer center. And so when when investors look at 
lodestone and you're trying to decide is this company you know, for real, they're looking for uh, technical traction and meaningful collaborations and uh, really proving that what we're doing can go the distance. And so these funds were, were critical for us to overcome some of those development hurdles and have a much stronger uh, technical side of our pitch for our next round of investment. Sure. Um, for, for us, we, we're um, in the unusual position of being uh, ahead of the pack in some areas, like the, the, we have four or five technologies <clears throat> uh, all within the company, not, not one. And they've been around for 10 plus years in stage, various stages of development. And every investor that we um, have spoken with or will be approaching has made it very clear to us that unless you have the intellectual property, uh, uh, you, you have no value. And uh, in the state of our, our, our diverse intellectual property was, from a business perspective, in shambles. And uh, it made no sense. People who would look at it would, would just say, we don't get it. You have this for 10 years. You have 200 clinical cases with this particular technology. Um, do, you know, do you know what your freedom to operate is? Do you know who your competitor is here? And why isn't that, patent, that particular patent issue? And um, and we were stuck. It was clearly identified as our Achilles heel, and the 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 Quinn scholarship made it possible for us to engage with a top tier uh, firm and actually leverage that interaction with them to get them now engaged for far more than than that award uh, to develop this IP. Yeah, great, thanks. Yeah. So I think for us, like, like I mentioned, it was quite different because we didn't have a product. But the IAB introduced us to this whole concept of social entrepreneurship and how to make something sustainable. Because we knew we had a great process that worked well. It impacted thousands of women's lives already. But how could we take that to the next level? And what the Quinn funding did was allow us to partner with the Tuck folks uh, to figure out, you know, what, what's it going to take inside of this country uh, and how are we going to be able to implement this with the powers that be there and all of the other social issues that they have. Great, great. Thank you. Well, thanks um, so much, Dave and Saul and Greg. Thanks to our Innovations Advisory Board who've obviously helped us make really uh, wise choices. And most importantly, thank you to the Quinn family for their uh, visionary philanthropy that's making uh, it possible for us to accelerate the delivery of our discoveries to the world.